Oh, I've expressed this thought before, I'll express it again. One of the true uh, simplistic beauties of our song service and the manner in which it is conducted is you have a, we all have a large active part in the uh, participation of the song service. Now, we, of course, we all sing, and also we all are allowed to select a song of our choice, however we feel so moved, from all ages. And that allows the Spirit of God to move among the congregation in a special way, special and direct way. And those songs that are called out are often a manner of direct edification and encouragement to the other people who hear them. So, we, yes, we are required to actively engage during maybe the preaching part of the service, but the song service is a way in which we are allowed to honor God in, in multiple ways in a very active manner. So thank you this morning. It was a great blessing to me to listen to you not only sing, but I believe that the Spirit of God moved among the congregation and caused them to call out some of those wonderful, beautiful songs that you requested to be sung. That is a blessing from God. I'm thankful to be able to place where we conduct our worship in that way. Now, I'll admit to you this morning, I was sitting early this morning drinking my uh, habitual cup of coffee and thinking about what I might present to you this morning, and I had some thoughts from the book of Job, and I had a random thought. I wonder if by chance Brother Tim may have, or Brother Tim or some other brother may have preached a sermon on the book of Job any time in the past. And so I went and looked back through the podcast, and sure enough, there was a sermon on Job. So I said, well, that's one sermon on Job. I'll listen to that this morning. And sure enough, not only was there one sermon on Job, Brother Tim had preached a wonderful sequel to that same sermon on the book of Job. So I'm not sure if that's a blessing in disguise or if that was an indication to me that I should not spend the majority of the time in Job. But I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Job. We'll spend a few moments there before we go elsewhere. And there's, you know, the book of Job is often considered to be very mysterious for one reason. You know, when we consider the suffering of Job and the circumstances that he found himself in, they, they are very uh, mysterious and often they are hard to understand because we are told by God that Job was a righteous man. And here's why that's somewhat of a conundrum. Because it makes sense to us that wicked people would suffer. If we do bad things, we have this conception in our mind that bad things will happen to us. Scripture tells us that. For what a man soweth, that shall he also reap. If someone sows something in the ground, they can expect that seed to come up as the specific type of plant that they put in the ground. If they sow a corn seed, a corn plant will come up. If they sow a pea in the ground, a pea plant's going to come up out of the ground. So if someone sows wickedness, it makes sense that they would often reap bad things. But we're told by God that Job was a righteous man. We're told that he was perfect or that he was mature. In verse 1 of Job chapter 1, we're told that there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. So he's perfect. He's upright. He fears the Lord. He respects God. He puts evil away from himself. This man is a good man. And we're told that he was prosperous. He had many children. He had these flocks and herds, thousands of animals, all this land that he could put all his cattle upon and all his goods upon. 
And he sacrificed for his children. He said, lest they have sinned, I will sacrifice for my children to atone them unto God. But then in verse 6, we're told that there came a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. So there's apparently an earth, earthly gathering of these beings, and Satan is among those people. You could say that could be the sons of God gathered together to worship. There is, there is no doubt that Satan has the ability to roam to and fro upon the earth as we read in a moment. And he could be in the worship service sometimes. We may have unwittingly invited him in. But, but regardless of the situation, Satan is at this gathering, and the Lord says unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth? Again, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? There's a reason that Satan is entitled elsewhere as the great accuser. Because as soon as Job is offered up as an upright and perfect or mature man, Satan immediately says, Does he really serve you out of his virtue or out of his goodness? Or does he serve you because you have caught, or does he only continue to serve you because you have given him prosperity? He challenges the motive of Job's righteousness. And Satan says in verse 10, Hath not thou made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And we go on to read about the afflictions of Job. Job's goods are taken away. His children are killed in a horrible natural catastrophe. He's afflicted with sores and boils upon his body. And he's literally, the only thing that he has left is his misery and his nagging wife. And he sits in the dust, scraping himself with a broken piece of pottery. That's a gruesome image. We don't like to think about that. It's a sad image. And we're told that throughout the majority of chapters 1 and chapter 2, Job did not sin. He didn't charge God foolishly. Then the end of chapter 2, we're told he did not sin with his lips. So suffice all this to say, throughout chapter 1, Job has maintained not only the integrity of his lips, but the integrity of his heart. Then in chapter 2, we're told that he didn't sin with his lips. Now, I'll go ahead and make this claim. That we find out by the end of the book of Job that Job did indeed sin. Because he admits it to God. He says, I am wrong and I repent in dust and ashes. But the, I believe one of the primary things that we can take away from this message is when we're examining our hearts and we're examining uh, the things that we do, the, way, the paths that our feet trod, the actions that our hands perform, the most important thing that we must take into consideration is the motive of our heart. Amen. Because Job was upright. He was prosperous. He was the epitome of a righteous man. But yet Satan challenges the motives of his heart. Because we see that the Lord 
Although he does, he does observe our outward actions, he looks at the heart. We understand Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 and 6 tells us, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So the primary motivation of all of our actions should be a pureness of our heart and a desire to please God. Because God, it's easy a lot of times to do something that outwardly is very appealing and very virtuous. We're told that the Pharisees were a people like this. They were like the, uh, the whitewashed sepulchers of Jerusalem. They were beautiful on the outside. They were majestic and they were wonderful. You know, they were constructed with the incredible architectural knowledge that the, the um, Jews had received from the Romans. But inside, they were just a tomb. Inside, there was a, there was a dead body. There was a corpse. And Jesus says, you may act good on the outside, Pharisees, but inside, you're like the inside of the tomb. You're rotten. So Satan challenges, again, he challenges Job's motive. And so we'll see this pattern throughout Scripture, that the Lord is the one who observes the motives of the heart. In Hebrews chapter 4, and verse 12, we're told, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it appears, turn there with me very briefly. We'll read that one verse. It's a very important principle. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, we gave some insight as to the role and the nature of the Spirit of God. For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So the Spirit can divide some of the things that are individable. We cannot see the intents of the heart in the same way that we cannot pretend to divide the soul and the spirit. When we examine Scripture, those things are seemingly indivisible. We can't tell the difference between the soul and the spirit. We can't tell the difference between the joints and the marrow. Where does the bone begin and where does the marrow begin? Where if there were no marrow, there would be no bone. If there wasn't a bone, the marrow wouldn't have anything to be inside. So we cannot divide those things in the same way we cannot divide the motives of someone's heart from their outward actions. Only the Lord can do that. So Job was a very pure man who had pure motives. And we are instructed as to the importance of those motives in the account of his suffering. But this is not the only account of a servant of God who had a a pure heart, who was motivated out of a sincere desire just to serve the Lord. David was another one of these men, I believe. We're told that he was pure of God. He He was pure. He was a man after God's own heart. What does that tell you about David? If we're talking about the purity of one's heart, David was a man after God's own heart. Could there be anyone that has a heart as pure as that of God? No, but David was so pure in motive throughout the majority of his life and throughout the times that he was close to God that we are told that he was a man after God's own heart. So what can we learn learn from David? Well, David, of course, was the young man who won a great victory for Israel when he killed the giant Goliath. 
I'm sure you have all heard this story. It's entrenched not only in religious tradition, but even in American tradition. As Americans, a lot of us just know about David and Goliath. And so David is apparently this youth. He's not battle-hardened. He's not battle-scarred. He hasn't killed hundreds of men like some of these other soldiers. And he simply goes up to this battle camp of the Israelites to take his brothers some food. And he gets to that camp, and he's got the food that he's bringing to his brothers, and he gets there just in time to witness the challenge that the giant Goliath is issuing to the Israelites. And the uh, giant says, essentially, I'm stronger than you because my God is stronger than you. None of you dare to fight me. And I'm so confident in my God, and I'm so confident in your weakness, that I challenge you to send out a champion and fight me on this battlefield, and I will defeat you. And David hears this challenge, and he becomes enraged. And he says, what, what are you doing standing here? We're servants of the Almighty God. Someone go out and fight this man. But they were all afraid. Because this, man, this giant was huge, was he not? And so David takes it upon himself through the strength of God, to God and fight this giant with a sling and some stones. Turn with me and we'll read some verses from 1 Samuel chapter 18. And we'll read about what David accomplished through his pureness of heart. Let's begin in, verse, in chapter 17. And so we're told in verse 50 that David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him, but there was no sword in the hand of David. So he kills this man. We're told that he slew him. So he's laying on the ground, but there was no sword in the hand of David. So David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took out his sword and drew it out of the sheath thereof and slew him and cut off his head therewith. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. This is a gruesome picture that's often not depicted in the children's version of this story because it is very graphic. David takes the sword of the giant that he just killed and he decapitates the giant. He takes off his head. And the men of Israel and of Judah arose in verse 52 and shouted and pursued the Philistines and now cometh to the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell down by the way to Shearim, even unto Gath and to Ekron. And the children of Israel returned from chasing after the Philistines, and they spoiled their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put his armor in his tent. And when Saul saw David go forth against the Philistine, he said unto Abner, the captain of the host, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As thy soul liveth, O king, I cannot tell. So David, he is chosen for this path of greatness by God himself. Previously, uh, we will read how Samuel went to the village in which David lived, went to David's father, because the Lord had told them that there will be a king for Israel out of the house of Jesse, out of David's father's house. And so Samuel observes all the sons of Jesse that he could pick to be king, and they're all paraded before him. And apparently, Jesse has some very impressive sons because the first one comes before him and he's tall and he's big and he's strong and he looks like a warrior. He, may have, he was apparently in the army because he's in the battle. But the Lord tells Samuel, no, this is not the one I want you to pick. 
He says, don't look on how big this dude is. Don't look how strong he is. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And because the Lord was looking at the pureness of heart of these men, he said, I want you to pick the one that is the least impressive. And so Samuel asked Jesse, are these all of your sons? Do you not have any more sons? And Jesse apparently says, well, yes, I have one, but he's out in the field. He's taking care of sheep. We didn't think he was really a fine enough specimen to have him paraded in front of you. So Samuel says, no, I, I, I want to see him too. So David is brought before Samuel. And David is eventually anointed as king by Samuel. And the first monumental thing that David does is he wins this incredible victory for the children of Israel. And in the case of both Job and David, we can see some beautiful illustrations of the suffering and the person and nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to think about the case of Job. We may often find ourselves in circumstances that we think we do not deserve. We can often find ourselves afflicted by somebody other than God. Regardless of how we examine the case of Job, God did not cause Job's suffering. It was orchestrated by Satan. God may have removed that hedge from Job so that Satan might afflict him. But Satan was the one who did it. He's afflicted by Satan. If there was anyone throughout the course of history that was unjustly afflicted, no, it was not Job. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. He walked upon this earth as a perfectly innocent man, as a man who had done nothing wrong, but yet he was caused to suffer even though he did not deserve it. He was caused to suffer for the most unworthy cause. It was for you and I of all the things he could have had to suffer for. It was us. No, when we consider the suffering, when we find ourselves in a circumstance which we are afflicted beyond that which we think we deserve, we can reflect on the case of Jesus Christ and realize that that is nothing when we compare it to what He went through. In the same way, when He examined men that are pure of heart, we ought to look to the example of Jesus Christ. There has never been anyone who walked upon the face of this earth with a heart that was so pure, that was so beautiful in its nature. Because He was God Himself. And David, as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, wins a victory for the children of Israel. Now why is this? Let's talk about a little bit of geography for a second. You know, the, the Valley of Ekron is just a, like a narrow, long gully located in, the city of, in, in Israel. It's just down to the north, the uh, southeast of Jerusalem, it's, or the southwest of Jerusalem. It's just located kind of off to the left side of Jerusalem, about 21 miles outside of the city gates. And as you take the traditional road from the Valley of Ekron to Jerusalem, you pass through one of the gates of the ancient city. And there upon your left, as you go into the gate, sits the location of Golgotha. Calvary, the, city, the hill upon which Jesus is traditionally considered to have been crucified. There's a reason that it is called Golgotha, or the hill of the skull, other than the fact that's where criminals were crucified. Running back throughout the annals of just Jewish oral tradition, 
is the fact that in order to enter Jerusalem, in order to proceed and view the marvelous wonders that David would have observed, the city, but the city that was still an enemy city, it was still the enemy of Jerusalem. David had not taken it yet. He still went to that city 21 miles away as an enemy, and guess what he took with him? The trophy of his victory, the head of Goliath. He carried it 21 miles to the city of Jerusalem. The city that he would ultimately place, the t- that his son would ultimately build the temple in. And the city that he would overtake, the city that he would take for the in- from the enemies of Israel and claim for himself. So he takes the head of Goliath to Jerusalem. And Jewish oral tradition says that that head was disposed of upon Golgotha. And it was called the Hill of the Skull for that reason. The Hill of the Skull of Goliath. Christ would also conquer an enemy on this hill. He would conquer the greatest enemy on this hill. In Genesis chapter 3, we're told the way that He would do that is the hill, His hill, would bruise the head of the serpent. David bruised more than bruised, the head of the enemies of Israel because of his pureness of heart. He was chosen for the task that he was because he was pure of heart, because the Lord used him as an instrument for victory. And he removed the head of Goliath, and he took it to Jerusalem, and it was disposed of upon that hill. And it was named the hill of Golgotha. And thousands of years later, after David had taken that city, And after his son had constructed one of the marvels of the ancient world, the temple of God dedicated to the worship of the one true Elohim, Jesus would come back here and he would bruise the head of the serpent to win a victory for his people. Do you see that this morning? David, because of his pureness of heart. Job suffers because of his pureness of heart. The Lord examines that purity of heart. And it all speaks to the man who would once again walk upon the earth, who would be the purest, who would be the greatest, who would be the ultimate sacrifice, who would bruise the head of the serpent on the hill, which David disposed of the sign of his victory. Can you see him this morning standing upon that hill overlooking this enemy city? There is a very distinct chance that he would not have even been allowed to enter. But before he entered, he stood upon that hill overlooking Jerusalem that he was eventually conquered. And I'm sure he held that victory up to the skies. And he said, this is what my God can accomplish. And as the Son of Man, whom he prophesied of, hung upon that cross and through eyes caked by blood, and as he gasped out his life breath, he looked over Jerusalem and he said it is finished this is what I have accomplished for my people I move this morning to think of that bloody and gruesome picture that was no less moving or intense than that which we would have seen of Jesus Christ treated as a disposed idol on that hill he's bloodied he's beaten He's just a criminal. He's a prisoner of war. But yet He's the Son of God. He is the ultimate symbol. The, he won the ultimate victory for His children, the, the eternal children of Israel upon that hill 
just as, as David did for his constituents and his people. Pray we'd recall that to mind. I just, I just rejoice to be with you this morning. It's been a great blessing. Please pray for Brother Tim as he comes. Love you all.